Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the podcast show. Many thanks for joining me tonight. And my special guest is Dr. Stephen Wright. Welcome. Good evening. So Dr. Wright is a board-certified family physician. He's been board certified in addiction medicine for 32 years and also in pain medicine for 16 years. And he's got a wide topic of interests. And the one he's been sharing with me before the call tonight was his interest in benzodiazepines, which is a group of medications that are commonly used by physicians for a variety of purposes. So, Dr. Wright, just bring us back a little bit in time. What made you get interested in, especially the pain? medicine world in your practice? So I started out in family medicine about 37 years ago and 32 years ago in addiction. And as you mentioned, about 16 years now in medical pain management. And uh, so just the easy topics in medicine, right? Quite a challenge, but I really enjoy the neurophysiology of who we are and why we operate the way we do. And when you look at uh, things like addictions and pain, and of course, there are other areas in medicine as well, and of course, mental health issues, these are very challenging areas that uh, can inform us about what's going on in our brains and why we do what we do, but also very important, of course, is to assist these other individuals. So I'm the kind of person who wakes up in the middle of the night thinking about the brain chemistry, what's going on, and I'm sure that's true for you, Wayne, as well. My, <laughs> my daughter, who is, uh, she's 30 now, and when she was seven, came up to my wife and said, Mommy, is daddy a nerd? And he said, yes, but we have to deal with them. And so you have to deal with me for the next half hour. So, but in any case, going along, you know, in my training, you know, benzodiazepines have been out there now 60 years ago this year. And it's really interesting, you know, there's a guy named Leo Sternbach who identified this. He was a chemist from Hungary, I believe. Anyway, he had a bunch of chemicals in his refrigerator, drove his research assistants crazy, and I'm not sure which animal he used, mice or rats or whatever, but figured out that chlorodiazepoxide epoxide reduces anxiety and just a three-year period of time it was on the market in the United States. Diazepam or Valium came on the scene just three years later. It was actually only a year after its initiation that we started seeing side effects, real severe withdrawal and that sort of thing. So the studies out there for a variety of benzodiazepines, and we have about 14 of them now, 
really occurred a long time ago. And this was when we didn't know how to do studies very well. And they were very short term in terms of the duration of the study exposure of uh, individuals with these agents. And so what we came to understand is that these benzodiazepines work very well for the short term. but We didn't have long observation periods to see what was going on. Fast forward into the 80s, individuals started showing up, and particularly in England, there was an interest there. Heather Ashton and Malcolm Later, in particular, gained an interest, and Heather Ashton, for I believe about a 14-year period of time, had a benzodiazepine withdrawal clinic. And she found a number of individuals that had striking symptoms, not things that we would typically associate with substances of potential addiction. And tapering them off found that this was an entirely different paradigm. Well, this all got lost along the way for some reason. I didn't learn it in clinical practice. And I was one of the usual benzodiazepine prescribers. Yeah, you know, old news, probably fine, just safe, you know. And yeah, we got a few people with some challenges, uh, but they're weird, you know. Uh, And that didn't turn out to be the case. I was dead wrong about that. So I was asked to put together a conference in Bend, Oregon on benzodiazepines. And I thought, okay, well, you know, it's important. You know, we do know the co-occurring disorders. We know about the co-prescribing challenges and so forth. But what happened was I found out that a lot of the assumptions that I've made about benzodiazepines, not true, totally unexpected stuff. And the biggest part of that was the patient panel that we put together, individuals that call themselves benzodiazepine survivors. Some of them in the, had experience with opioids and the challenges in the pain domain, but also just as independent agents. And I found out that there was striking symptoms that I didn't expect in relation to use during benzodiazepines, as well as in the withdrawal period, such as individuals that had extreme sensitivity to sound, light, touch, smells, taste, those kind of things, things that just seemed so weird uh, to those of us in clinical practice, and we're not used to that, and we just think, oh my gosh, these are psychosomatic, and cast them off. So in the process then, too, linking them together with pain management. So it turns out, as I've been taking a closer look at this over the last three years, is that one in five individuals, or even more than that, depending on the studies, anywhere from 16 to 33% of individuals in a pain practice are on opioids plus benzodiazepines. So why are we doing so much of that? In the general population, it's a bit lower. It's somewhere between 6 and 13%, and that depends on the survey instrument that's used. And this is the United States. And incidentally, in Canada, a somewhat different picture. It's more in the range of 4 to 6%. But in any case, we want to use medications appropriately for the right reasons and all of that kind of stuff taken on exploring why we're using it in that context. And of course, the obvious answers are uh, include anxiety, insomnia, but also it turns out, and I just did a review of this, that we do use benzodiazepines because we want to use them for pain itself. And so I took a look at 111 different pain conditions, and I went online to look around in the uh, search engines to see Is it a good idea to use for back pain or uh, sciatica, things like that? 
So it turns out there are only two conditions out of all of those 111 where benzodiazepines have been demonstrated to be effective. These are not terribly common. And it turns out it's burning mouth syndrome, which is a burning sensation in the mouth that occurs uh, when there's no other disease like dental disease connected to it. And there, benzodiazepines are used for a short period of time, two, three weeks, and the problem diminishes dramatically. And then there's a condition called the stiff person syndrome, where individuals have this muscle rigidity and spasms that's associated with that. And there, there's excellent data to support the use of benzodiazepines there. But for the other pain conditions, the things that I grew up with, you know, back pain with radiating leg pain, you know, the acute back situations, that has not been demonstrated in uh, evidence-based literature, but we use this a lot in pain management. Now, when you look at just those two conditions, and maybe we shouldn't be using that there, but we're using benzodiazepines in pain management mostly for anxiety and insomnia. And it makes sense. You know, it turns out that there is a bi-directional, both directions. So people with pain have more anxiety, more people with anxiety have more pain. Same thing with insomnia. And it's about 50% or more of individuals with pain will have anxiety, 50% will have uh, insomnia. So we've got a drug for that, right? So we use these uh, medications uh, for these individuals and harken back to what I mentioned earlier about the studies uh, with observation periods of short periods of time. Some of the agents were approved by the FDA for only one week of trial and sometimes four weeks, sometimes eight weeks. The Alprazolam story, the Xanax story, is uh, notable because the study was actually conducted for an eight-week period of time, and for the first four weeks, there was benefit, but then that benefit was lost. But what was provided to the FDA was not the full data set. They only got the uh, four-week data. And what we have found in taking a look at individuals that use these agents for anxiety, that you can very often have effectiveness that drops off like a stone. And so what happens <clears throat> is an individual with anxiety, I'm taking alprazolam, it seems to be uh, kind of holding, or maybe it's not holding. And then, uh, you know, if I try to drop it off, I start having withdrawal. And then part of that withdrawal is anxiety. So I think, oh, that medicine must be working because as I remove it, the anxiety is there. Well, not exactly. If you go through the entire process of withdrawal, and there are a number of studies out there that show this, you eventually can have that anxiety to go away. But it's even worse than that. Heather Ashton did a study in 1987, published in 87, this was from her clinic, 50 consecutive individuals that showed up and say, I wanna get off the benzos that I'm on. These individuals uh, pretty much universally had worse anxiety on the benzos, and 20% of them had a condition called agoraphobia, which is a kind of anxiety where it's so bad that I can't leave the house. And those individuals developed the agoraphobia after they started the benzos. And she removed the benzos, and over a period of time, her observation period was up to three and a half years, all of these individuals got better. So just like with opioids, where we see the opioids possibly causing pain, hyperalgesia, 
I do think that there is a neurologic mechanism that's out there that's called, uh, that I would call benzodiazepine-induced hyperangiogenesis, generating anxiety with these agents. But it gets worse than that. There are side effects, and the side effects are all over the place. The kind of usual things you expect, like uh, being sleepy, not driving well, things like that. But a big part of the problem is also uh, the side effect where during withdrawal, things get really ramped up and get to be a significant challenge. And I say, okay, well, maybe like the other addiction-prone substances, you just kind of taper them off, maybe two, three weeks, a month, two months, maybe a few people at four months. So it turns out uh, that there is a universe of individuals that are no longer in our practice, medical practice, that are online struggling with this, and they are struggling and supporting each other, benzodiazepine survivors, and a number of good websites, uh, Benzo Buddies and Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, where they support each other because they didn't get that in our office. And so part of the problem in terms of our seeing this as medical providers is, is that these individuals basically left our practice probably because we weren't listening to them. And there are a couple studies out there, uh, one from the UK, and we're doing one right now, taking a look at the reports of the individuals in the online universe saying, well, what really happened? And we see that come up over and over again, that my prescriber didn't listen to me, to the challenge that I have. And if they did listen to me, they said it was addiction. So addiction, of course, is a real disease, really important, and it has characteristic features, but with benzodiazepines, uh, that's a different situation. The vast, vast majority of individuals that struggle with benzodiazepines and come in talking about it, they don't have addiction. They are unable to withdraw because it's very, very difficult. And because we as prescribers have not had the skills to assist them in that process. So the one criteria of inability after multiple attempts to come off of a substance, that criteria isn't met for individuals that are on benzodiazepines and struggling, the vast majority of them anyway, because craving is not behind there. So the central element about addiction is craving. It's uh, really defined by Compulsion, thinking about it all day long. Loss of control, today I'm going to have two of these and then I have 20. And then continuation in spite of adverse consequences. I get loaded, I plow my car into the tree, I swear I won't do it again, and then I do. Or come off a roof or something like that. That's not what happens with benzodiazepines. vast majority of individuals are on them and stay on basically the same dose for many, many years if they're prescribed in that particular fashion, but they don't accelerate the dose. So in the addiction universe where I come from, we're not used to that. Individuals with alcohol and opioid addiction, they are accelerating their use. And so we didn't recognize it. We didn't recognize or validate their particular concerns. We thought their symptoms were weird or psychosomatic, which is in an odd sort of way really puts the blame on the patient, which is not the case. There are neurophysiologic consequences to these agents that are very real. And we're just starting to figure that out. So benzodiazepines work at a receptor called the GABA-A receptor. 
and it's mostly in the brain. It's also in the other parts of the body. But it turns out in 1977 that it was found that benzodiazepines bind to receptors uh, throughout the body. And in 1992, that receptor was identified. It went by a different name, tryptophan-rich sensory protein, or TSPO, or the translocator protein. Well, with that different word, there were two universes of researchers, those who were looking at the peripheral side of the benzodiazepine uh, receptors and those looking centrally at the GABA-A receptor. This particular receptor peripherally is on mitochondria everywhere and could be explanatory for these very strange symptoms. So we're now just trying to put this together in terms of, you know, what we're doing. So the work that I'm doing is primarily through a group called the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, and you can Google us. We are looking to assist prescribers in particular into adjusting their prescribing practices. There are lots of these sites, probably uh, you know, 20 of them for individuals that are benzodiazepine survivors, but not focused on the prescribing side of things. And so we're looking at doing research, such as what I was looking at for a review, benzodiazepines and pain management, how safe and effective are they over a long period of time and things like that. And uh, uh, trying to assist prescribers, particularly in the withdrawal protocol, you know, how you do this. And there was another surprise for me, you know, rather than this uh, four-week withdrawal or four-month withdrawal, it turns out because it's so severe for a population of individuals, maybe 10 or 15 percent, that's important to think in terms of 12 to 18 months of tapering for these individuals in order to be successful. So that's kind of what I've been up to uh, in, in a nutshell in relation to that. Amazing. Well, thank you for the, uh, for the answer to the question. You know, it, it was fascinating. When you mentioned Heather Ashton's work, I just had a big smile on my face because 15 years ago, I was introduced by default to Heather Ashton's work and how to get patients off mixtures of benzodiazepines and the opiates. And I used her protocols for years as a family physician and made a big effort, concerted effort, over many months, as you said, even up to 12 months sometimes, to get these patients off of it by swapping them and using different ones that can be reduced in smaller amounts. And it's it's truly remarkable that um, something as so insidious as a two-week prescription of a a medication to help your anxiety can end up with this long-term effect where people are just misunderstood and labeled as addicts and they try to come off and they can't you know and we don't know why you know that's the our training but we really don't and it's a surprise you know i've heard up to even just as short as one week period of time on benzodiazepines having this kind of a challenge and so you know it's really important to think about it in those terms uh, because we really want to limit initiation of the drug in the first place because of that severity yeah not enormous numbers in relation to that, but we want to limit initiation. We want to limit the duration of therapy to two to four weeks. And like I say, you're still not going to capture everybody that's going to have a challenge in relation to that, but that seems to be a reasonable cutoff point 
And so long-term is really beyond that uh, four-week window. And so I do think that regardless of the reasons that the benzodiazepines were initiated, the tapering process ought to be offered to everybody to say, okay, let's take a look at that. Now, forced reductions, which is a big deal, of course, in the opioid domain as well, is equally important here. It's important to recognize that there may be some individuals that it's a good idea to be on forever. I, you know, I'm not convinced that there are very many of those individuals, but I'm open to that. Uh, but in any case, force reductions, uh, as I mentioned, you got to be prepared for the withdrawal process. You got to have your supports up in place and that sort of thing. Family, peer coaching now uh, as well. But force reductions are not the way to go. But just like with opioids, if the decision is made, okay, I'm going to tread water and continue along here, you want to monitor. Uh, you want to monitor and see if there are further declines. Because what we do know with benzodiazepines too is the cognitive ability, the ability to memory and make good decisions and good judgments, that can decline over time. And so sit in our chair as medical prescribers, we're sitting there with an aging individual and we're thinking, well, this person's declining because they're aging or it's evolving something entirely different. So we misallocate the reasons to something else and we forget about the benzodiazepines. And in fact, we forget about benzodiazepines in the pain management domain because we're focused on the opioids. And yes, we do need to be focused on the opioids. I'm not saying that. But what happens is most people say, yeah, benzodiazepines are a problem. Uh, I'll get to that later, which ultimately means I don't get to it at all. And that's a real challenge. So what we do know, for example, with the opioid domain tapering process, that can be done too rapidly as well and create difficulties for patients. We see individuals with leveraged reductions at uh, suicide and things like that. That's simply not okay. So there's a receptor out there called the toll-like receptor, and we're not convinced that it's a major receptor in relation to that, but might have something to do with it. It neuro-readapts with opioid tapering, uh, sometimes as long as uh, four months. So if you're doing tapering with the opioids, and you also have benzos on board, one possibility, because both agents for some individuals can't be reduced quickly, Alternate back and forth, but don't forget about the benzos. So as you're going along and you maybe decide that you're going to continue the agents, you want to monitor. So you want to monitor, I think, basically three different domains. One is, of course, the uh, cognitive domains. I'd add a fourth, the psychomotor domain, your ability to balance, speak, drive, those kind of things. Monitor that over a period of time. Monitor the mood over a period of time because, as I mentioned, uh, benzodiazepines may contribute to increased anxiety, paradoxically. And then, with or without the benzos on board, if you just have opioids, you want to do an oxygenation status, see how they're doing. We talk about the individual's risk, and in pain management, I remember these long debates, you know, my opinion is you're at risk and we want to reduce your opioids. And the patient says, well, my opinion is otherwise. After all, I'm sitting here alive, aren't I? And until that stops happening, we don't know that they're at risk. Well, we do, you know, so like in diabetes, do you have diabetes or not? Well, your hemoglobin A1C, which is the measure that we use, 
is 11, that's a really high number. Well, the debate is over. So we want an objective situation in opioids too, rather than this endless debate. Well, we have that. We can do sleep studies and overnight nocturnal oxygenation studies to see if an individual is actually at uh, or below the respiratory threshold that puts them at risk. And so monitoring uh, patients that are just on opioids or monitoring patients that are on opioids plus benzos can be done by looking at the cognitive testing and the mood and the psychomotor ability and oxygenation. By the way, it was a family doc who told me, how do you know if somebody is psychomotor impaired or something like that? He said, he threw me a pen and I caught it in the air. He said, you can do this in the office and see how agile an individual is, kind of get a gross idea. You can never say driving capable because you don't know that. Uh, Maybe they never drive, but you can kind of get a sense for in the office uh, setting what their capacity is. And so monitoring along the way for individuals that do not want to reduce the benzodiazepine. And then as things evolve and if they get worse, you can leverage a change. Say, hey, it looks like you had a real decline in your memory. Maybe it is related to benzos. Maybe it's not. It's probably not helping. And incidentally, there is data out there that suggests an association between benzodiazepines and the development of dementia. And it's the old motivational interviewing thing. What's your goal in life and what's going on with your behavior right now? And are the two linked together or not? And so if your goal in life is to be cognitively able to attend to your grandchildren's lives and you're taking a medication that might not do that. And so rather than lecturing them, they take ownership of the potential problem. Can you help me? And there we are to help them with the tapering process. Excellent. You know, it's been excellent just reviewing this with you today. It's been a long time since I've had my own clinical practice several years now. And it just brings me back to the days where so many people are on this combination of medications. And I'm sure many people listening tonight who are on opioids are on these benzodiazepines. And, you know, just for the audience purposes, can you just tell us a few of the common names, generic names that, so the brand names that they would know off the top of their head? Oh, sure. So the very first one was chlordiazepoxide. That's Librium. The second one out of the box was diazepam, which is Valium. And then, of course, Alprazolam, which is Xanax. Clonazepam is clonopin, and then there are a bunch of others, chlorazepate, which is transine, and on down the line. Those are the main ones. So the benzodiazepines are the ones we primarily talk about, but there's a connecting group of medications that are called the non-benzodiazepines. That sounds like a crazy term, right? Or the Z-drugs, and they're called Z-drugs because they have the letter Z in their name. So like Zopiclone, which we don't use anymore, or Zolpidem, which is Ambien, or Sonata is in there as well. So the Z drugs actually also act at the GABA receptor in fairly similar ways. And so we see the same sort of side effects and problems and withdrawal uh, connected with them. So you might be on a sleeping pill that is a benzo-like agent. Now, I do want to mention that when benzos came on the market, this was a remarkable, great advance because what we had before was even more terrible. It was the barbiturates. And we do have a little bit of use of that nowadays. Individuals, uh, phenobarbital, 
typically used for seizures. There's a uh, product uh, called Butalbital. It's in a furanol or furacet here in the U.S., and so it's used for headaches, shouldn't be used for headaches, by the way, because it causes rebound problem that, that is very, very difficult. But nonetheless, uh, the barbiturates, they were even worse. And so as bad as we see the benzos, it could be worse than that. But we need to move on from there and look at the alternatives for individuals that have anxiety disorders and sleep disorders. So it turns out with the Z drugs, in terms of looking at the benefit for sleep, you get about 12 minutes of extra sleep from them. Uh, That doesn't seem like it's going to change my life. You know, uh, it certainly will put you down a little quicker, too. But, you know, when you look at it that way, maybe they're not as great as we thought they were. But we think of it, and a lot of times we think of those agents in terms of the very first time that I took it, boy, I got the best night ever. But the problem is, is that benefit kind of slips away over a period of time. And even though it slips away, when I stop it, it's even worse temporarily because of the withdrawal effect. And so I kind of stay with that. But still, it may not be a good idea. So alternatives. So cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, uh, better than the Z drugs probably uh, over a period of time. Cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety, probably as good as the benzos right at the early end and much more durable. There is a study out there where you do cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, four to eight weeks, and it had durability of benefit for 18 months, which was the longest observation period of that uh, particular study, maybe longer. Isn't that cool? I mean, to be able to do something like that benefits, you just don't have to show up at the therapist every week for decades. Uh, You just do the kind of skills that you learn about. But you can't learn those skills very well if you're on a benzo. You can't acquire information and assimilate all of that. So are there other substances out there? Of course. And we do see some plant products that are out there of interest as well. And of course, everybody's thinking cannabis right now. But the problem is, is that the cannabinoids do affect the GABA receptor as well. And we don't know about the durability of benefit. We actually don't even know with a lot of certainty about the acute benefit of cannabis in populations like this as well. Studies are kind of all over the map in terms of sleep as well as anxiety. So the way those studies take place is that you come in, you sit down, you do a survey, somebody fills out a survey about, you know, how's your sleep, how's your anxiety? Well, the problem with those original surveys is that individuals that were filling them out were using cannabis on a daily basis. And we don't know whether they were loaded at the time they were answering the question, because we do know that the acute effect is going to be different from the long-term consequences of these agents, sort of like alcohol. Like alcohol will give me that relaxation right at the front end, but over a long period of time, it creates anxiety. Same thing with cannabis. So all those studies need to be redone to sort all that out. So we don't know with the cannabinoid products, but of course, there's a lot of interest out there and we're going to see that. Valerian, often used as well. Well, it turns out valerinic acid as well as some of the uh, other chemicals in valerian also affect the GABA receptor. So is there anything out there that might not? Well, lavender as it turns out. Now, there's a small study that compared lavender to lorazepam for anxiety worked equally as well. But here's the cool thing. 
lavender doesn't work at the uh, GABA receptor. It's probably in the serotonin domain. Now, there are issues there too, but when you're looking at using a substance long-term, based on what we now know about the GABA receptor and the challenges that it poses because of the benzodiazepines, I would try to stay away from uh, any agent, whether it's called natural or not, in that regard. Remember, natural products, they may have a lot of value, but keep in mind, strychnine is natural. We don't use a lot of that. Uh, tobacco is natural. So just because it has kind of a natural flavor to it doesn't automatically mean that it's a great and safe uh, product. You've got to be aware of the plant products that you're using uh, as well. Probably nutrition is important, but we don't know yet what those elements might be. People speculate in terms of using low glycemic index where products don't cause this huge rise in sugar as being beneficial. And we don't have the studies, but my guess is that's probably a valid theme that does need to be studied. The other thing is full proteins, you know, with all the amino acids and that sort of thing, because the amino acids support the neurochemistry of our brain. Well, that sounds like a great concept too, uh, but also hasn't played out. And what I can tell you is, is that uh, talking with individuals that are benzodiazepine survivors, they're all over the map. I tried this diet, it worked well. For another person, that diet did not actually harm me. And so gluten-free, you know, paleo, things like that, all of interest all need to be studied, but uh, I can't say one way or the other, but uh, I'm pretty certain that, you know, foundational good health practices are going to make a difference, you know, mm -hmm. exercise on a regular basis, sleep as best you can with cognitive behavioral therapy if you need that uh, as best you can, and a good, healthy, balanced diet, nothing necessarily more complex than that. Although there will probably be some things and some things your viewers might say, well, this really, really worked for me. Don't abandon that. While we are trying to gear up to figure this out from studies, do the things that you think will work well in that regard. But avoid those plant-based products that have chemicals in it that can affect the GABA receptor. Well, listen, thank you so much. You've gone through a lot of additional things as we rolled on there, which is fantastic to hear. Certainly. Not, not only tonight, but we've heard this in several episodes before as well. And I think I'll just end with my little testimony in recent times where I quit eating food in the evening and focused my main meal of the day around 6 p.m. and left the evening at least four hours before going to bed. And that made a huge difference in my sleep and the quality of my sleep as well. Because when you think about it, just like going for a a run or an exercise program, you're not going to fill your stomach because you got the blood pooling to the stomach for digestive purposes. Well, it's so true when we're sleeping, you know, our digestive process needs to be finished and resting so the blood can flow to the brain in a more productive manner. And I, I think that little That's explanation right. works for me anyway, and certainly as a, a reality. So let's leave it on that. Thanks so much, Dr. Wright, for your expertise and your commitment to you know, research and many years of practice and bringing forth those valuable years to help us tonight as well as all your clients and, and all the things you're up to with the Alliance of Benzodiazepine Best Practice. And just for our audience, you can check that out. Is there a website other than the looking up Alliance of Benzodiazepine Best Practices? 
I would look up uh, Benzo Buddies and uh, Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. That that's kind of on the side of for the patients. You know, what do we do? We're working with uh, patients as well in terms of providing information pieces and things like that. How to talk to your doctor, things like that. The support and that kind of more specific information you can find there. There's another uh, website called Inner Compass, which uh, gives a fairly good direction to individuals that are particularly challenged with the tapering process. I can recommend that as well. Well, thank you once again. All the best. Thank you. 